You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. In the last episode, we took a break from the timeline of Alyssa's case to hear from her biological father, Stephen Strom. In this episode, we will be narrowing our focus on the investigative efforts that were occurring while my father's bomb trial was taking place, including looking at two interviews from my and Alyssa's oldest brother, Rhett. And we're diving deep into the official analysis of Alyssa's runaway note and looking at the search of my father's duplicate truck. So let's jump right in with the two interviews from my and Alyssa's oldest brother, Rhett. While the interviews are similar in some content, it's important to note that they were conducted three years apart, and one while my brother was under the influence of drugs, and the second when he was in prison and sober. As you might remember from earlier episodes, our brother Rhett wasn't around me and Alyssa a whole lot while we were growing up, but out of all six of us kids, Rhett is by far the most intelligent. Family rumor has it that he was discussing the Civil War by the age of five, and to be honest, I believe it. While he was growing up, our father was by all accounts much less broken and spent a lot of time with Rhett, and discipline often came in the form of writing an essay from the encyclopedia. The few times Rhett stayed with us while Alyssa and I were growing up, we would watch Jeopardy together and he almost never got an answer wrong. In addition to this, he knew insane facts off the top of his head. I remember one time I was in the fourth or fifth grade and had a report due on Russia. I had to explain basic facts like population, imports, exports, and whatnot, and when Rhett saw me looking up the answers, he began spouting off these facts from memory. But being the skeptic that I am and very concerned about my grades, I double-checked this information, and he was 100% accurate. None of my and Alyssa's brothers are dumb. But when I read Rhett's interviews, I trust that his memory is probably pretty accurate. And you can really tell in these second and third interviews that he feels so guilty about what happened to Alyssa and that he is tired of holding back. This is the second of three interviews that Rhett would end up giving. And at 13 pages, he divulges so much that I never knew. This time... After Rhett failed to return the phone calls and messages left by Detectives Summershoe and Anderson, they decided to visit Rhett's home on August 4, 2009. The report begins with, As a note, this interview is far more detailed than was originally offered by Rhett Turney. Rhett stated that fear of his father was the contributing factor in his having withheld information during the original videotaped interview with Detective Anderson. Now that Michael Roy Turney was in custody, 
Rhett was somewhat more comfortable speaking to police. Detective Summershoe and I went to the home of Rhett Turney in an effort to speak with him. Rhett had consented to an earlier interview prior to the search warrant and subsequent arrest of his father. This first interview had Rhett portraying a loyal son and advocate for his father, Michael Roy Turney. I had, however, heard conflicting statements from associates of Rhett's and his siblings in regards to what Rhett believed happened to his half-sister, Alyssa Turney. Rhett was not at home when Detective Summershoe and I first arrived. Rhett was contacted by his roommate by phone and advised that he would be home shortly. Detective Summershoe and I waited in the hallway. Rhett arrived a few minutes later. Rhett escorted Summershoe and I into the home, and we began to discuss his earlier statement. I explained to Rhett that there were some inconsistencies between his initial statement and the testimony of his friends and siblings. I explained to Rhett that these differing statements suggest that he had a far darker opinion of his father than what was originally provided. Specifically, two sources had informed this detective that Rhett had voiced some suspicion about his father's behavior toward Alyssa Turney. Rhett had confided that he felt that his father may have molested the child and may be responsible for her disappearance. The detectives and my brother Rhett then discussed the incident in which Alyssa was taken into the desert and our father tried to sexually assault her. And the report goes into detail about Rhett's allegations, stating, Rhett advised that Alyssa had confided in him and that Michael Roy Turney tried to touch her while the two were driving alone in the area of the I-17 and Happy Valley Road. Rhett added commentary about his father's upbringing. If a female is not your biological daughter, she was in effect a compatible potential sexual partner. Rhett added that Sarah Turney would not be targeted by her father as there was a biological connection. Alyssa Turney was, however, adopted and shared no biological relationship with Mike Turney. Rhett implied that his father had made a sexual advance towards Alyssa Turney. When asked for specific details about the touching, Rhett could only say, quote, I guess he came on to her, end quote. Rhett and the detectives then begin speaking about Alyssa's last day. Rhett appeared at times animated and emotional. Rhett volunteered to detectives, quote, I just found out that he took her out of school that day. I mean, come on. He takes her out of school on the last day of school? End quote. Rhett had not been informed of Alyssa having been picked up by Michael Roy Turney on the day in question. The reason for the omission was not clear. Rhett and the two detectives then go into the background of my father, a lot of which you guys have heard again and again. But one thing that I thought was really interesting was the following story. Rhett then added a recollection from when he was about 15. Rhett said that he was picking on his younger brothers when Michael Roy Turney, quote, He fucking took his hand and hit me like a man, like seven or eight times. All I saw was white. I didn't talk to him for two months afterward. End quote. Rhett then goes on to speak about the various times in which my father was inappropriate with his first wife's sisters, and Rhett pretty much confirms all the stories. At this point in the interview, Rhett tells the detectives about a time his friend Leslie gave our father a ride to northern Arizona around 2007. Our father enlisted Leslie's help because he wasn't feeling well enough to drive himself to visit our dying uncle, so he offered Leslie $100 to make the trip stay overnight at a motel, and drive him back the next day. However, while driving, my father secretly records Leslie twice, and when she questions him, he stated that both times were accidents. 
During this car ride, my brother Rhett learns of this trip that my father arranged with Leslie. And Rhett, along with his other friends, power call my father's cell phone, as Leslie didn't have a cell phone of her own. But our father doesn't answer. And when Leslie asks about the voicemails he's receiving, my father claims he doesn't know how to access his voicemail, and that Rhett was worried that Leslie was going to rob him on the trip and was just being an overprotective son. When my father and Leslie finally arrive at the motel, Leslie waits outside while my father gets them each a room. However, when he comes back to Leslie, he states that there was only one room available and they must share. But Leslie would later check with the attendant at the desk and obtain her own room with no issue. After obtaining the separate room, my father turns on his recorder and approaches Leslie, asking if he has done anything to make her uncomfortable to which she states in her police interview that of course she was uncomfortable, but she said no just to get it over with. And most chilling of all, when Leslie returned the next day and spoke with my brother Rhett, Rhett says he wasn't afraid Leslie was going to rob our father, but he was afraid for Leslie's life and called our father all night trying to check on her. When Leslie asks what all the fuss is about, Rhett confesses to her that he believes our father is a very dangerous man and raped and killed Alyssa. The police then shift their focus back to Alyssa. They ask if Alyssa could have been lying about the allegations. And Rhett says no, that he couldn't provide any examples of Alyssa having made up inappropriate stories or fiction about our father or anyone else. Rhett was then asked outright if he thought that our father did something to Alyssa, made her disappear, or did something that had ended her life. And Rhett says that he actually asked our father, stating, quote, I asked him once. I asked him one time. He charged me. He was mad. He was pissed. End quote. Rhett goes on to describe our father, stating, quote, I thought he was Jesus Christ. He could do no wrong. But growing up as an adult, I began to see his flaws, and there were many. I got to see the meanness, end quote. And then it seems that Rhett grows pretty emotional in the interview, stating, quote, Part of me will always love him, no matter what. All of this bullshit. Where's my sister? Where is my sister at? He's the one responsible. He's the one that picked her up last. He's the one that saw her. Where is she at? Where the fuck is she at? End quote. And they talk extensively about Thomas Heimer's confession, my father stating that he killed those two men from the Union, as well as the pipe bombs. And Rhett goes on to explain that our father was probably expecting some type of shootout with the police when he was arrested. And Detective Anderson presses him on this. And Rhett states, quote, He's the man against the government. They were out to get him. You have to understand this man. You don't know how lucky those officers were to catch him at just the right time. He was prepared. And in his mind, this had been coming for a long time. End quote. And remember how my father's big plot against the Union was supposedly in the name of getting justice for Alyssa? Well, Rhett goes on to explain a meeting he had with our father in the late 1990s, so years before Alyssa was gone. He said that he actually met our father outside of that local union building, stating, quote, I was homeless, walking by, and I saw my dad pushing a shopping cart. 
and I asked him, what are you doing? According to Rhett, our father said, quote, I'm doing surveillance, end quote. Rhett added that his father was dressed like a transient. Rhett was then asked if our father had ever discussed methods of or wanting to dispose of human bodies. Rhett replied, quote, Actually, it was Mike that told me that he had lye or lime in the storage shed. I actually saw the lie. Rhett then asked out loud, Why does he have lye in the storage shed? They then go on to discuss the lack of surveillance from the day Alyssa left. How they still haven't been able to recover a VHS tape how they still haven't been able to recover an audio recording of Alyssa's call from a week later. And so they ask Rhett, why do you think that we can't find this VHS tape or the audio tape? And Rhett, referring to our father, replies, quote, because he's full of shit and it never happened. He was probably lying in the first place. End quote. Rhett was then asked to describe our father as a man. Specifically, is he capable of harming a child that he helped raise? And Rhett replied, quote, I'm beginning to think that he killed her, end quote. Detective Anderson then interjects and says that he's not trying to talk him into anything. And Rhett reiterates that he had already asked our father this question, quote, I said, Dad, did you kill Alyssa? End quote. Rhett then again grew emotional and he answers his own question, saying, quote, I don't know, I don't know, I think that perhaps he did it, end quote. They then go on to discuss where Rhett thinks Alyssa's body might be. He says that the idea of Desert Center, California, that our father had been leading the police on to believe Alyssa's body was at, is, quote, horseshit. He then suggests a place in northern Arizona, near our Uncle James's house, where the family used to get together and hunt. The detectives then discuss a few different things with Rhett, including the trial, my father accusing him of planting the bombs, and so forth. The detectives reiterate to Rhett that all roads are leading back to our father as the last person to see Alyssa, and Detective Anderson goes on to say that it was apparent that Alyssa had some issues with her father. At this point, Rhett interjects and says, quote, Obviously, she didn't want anyone to rape her. Motive right there. End quote. And one of the last things that they discuss in this interview is the involvement of Child Protective Services. They discuss the calls made by our father a year before Alyssa was gone. And Rhett talks about even in his childhood, growing up with CPS being like a nightmare. He says that he and all of his siblings knew that if CPS entered the home, they would attempt to separate us. And that this was an ingrained fear put into our heads by our father. The interview then ends. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. 
I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by Quince. The weather is getting warmer, which means it's time to put away all the sweaters and pants and say hello to shorts and t-shirts. I absolutely was looking to update my wardrobe without spending a fortune, and I went right back to Quince for that. I personally don't love trendy clothes that I have to replace every few months. I am looking to build my solid core collection of essentials, and with the huge selection at Quince, I can do that. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from 30 bucks, washable silk tops, they have jewelry, and so much more. One thing I really love about Quince too is that they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. And they only use premium fabrics and finishes, so you're not cutting any corners when it comes to quality. I've really been trying to play with pairing casual with more upscale pieces. So recently I just matched a silk skirt with this black tee that I just love and fits really, really well. I think it came together pretty cute. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com justice for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot justice to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com justice. My brother Rhett's third interview happens a few years later in 2012. This is another long, rambling interview, and like I said earlier, a lot of the same topics are repeated, so I'm just going to pick out what I feel is new and relevant to the story at this point. What's interesting about this interview is that my brother Rhett says it's the only interview he's ever given police completely sober, and what's more interesting is that his story doesn't really change. So drugs or no drugs, I think that he's trying to be honest and as forthcoming with these officers as possible. Rhett reiterates again that he believes that our father was molesting Alyssa and is directly responsible for her death. Detective Anderson writes in this report, I explained to Rhett how I approached the disappearance of Alyssa and what I had originally intended to do with the investigation. I made it clear to Rhett that it was his father's behavior that alarmed me and still concerns me today. In short, what made me suspect Michael Roy Turney was speaking to Michael Roy Turney. Detective Anderson then brings up a pretty interesting point. He mentions a time when my father accused my brother Rhett of saying that our father had molested him. I had never heard this rumor, and Rhett flat-out denies ever accusing our father of molesting him or ever being molested. But Detective Anderson pushes, and he presents the idea that our father could be lying in order to set the groundwork that our brother Rhett could be discredited in court according to this statement, meaning that if he's lying about this allegation of being molested, he could be lying about anything. So Detective Anderson poses the question, Is this another form of manipulation in order to discredit his own son from being able to testify against him in court? 
Anderson then likens this situation to our father calling Child Protective Services in 2000 to discredit Alyssa and what she was about to say about him. This question obviously isn't answered in this interview, but it's certainly interesting to think about. And this prompts Rhett to speak about that day where Alyssa said that our father had drove her out into the desert and tried to sexually assault her, prompting those calls to CPS. The report reads, Rhett acknowledged that Alyssa had provided him with a very detailed story of the event. Rhett responded, quote, She told me what happened. I told her, don't go back. End quote. Rhett then goes on to state, that he doesn't think that our father can be treated with any type of therapy or medication. Detective Anderson then asks Rhett, why do you think your father doesn't want to speak to police? And Rhett replies, quote, I think probably because he did it. Like I said, I already told you. End quote. Detective Anderson then describes a conversation that he had heard via audio tape between our father and our uncle, Lyle. We covered this in a past episode, But as a refresher, our father essentially tells Lyle a story that if Alyssa had been raped at a party, she would cry and then return to the same party. Detective Anderson then asks my brother Rhett if he thought that this was a fair characterization of Alyssa. And Rhett replied, quote, That is what he would like you to believe she's like. End quote. And Anderson continues to press Rhett. He wants him to explain why his father would say such things about Alyssa. And Rhett replies, quote, Because he did something to my sister, I believe. I think he got her out of school, took her home, tied her up, raped her, took her out, and killed her. End quote. They then begin discussing images my father had of a young woman tied up. And Rhett says that in 1996 or 1997, there was an incident in which our father tied up Alyssa as punishment for fighting with me. A very interesting part of this interview for me, especially as you guys learn what will come in the future with Alyssa's case, is Detective Anderson outlining the means, motive, and opportunity of my father to have killed Alyssa. I'm going to read this part of the police interview verbatim. I spoke to Rhett about my belief that his father was responsible for Alyssa's disappearance. I stated that for a crime to be successful, you need means, motive, and opportunity. The opportunity was Michael Roy Turney removing Alyssa from school on her last day of classes. The means were as simple as his physical size or already established access to weapons. I then suggested the molestation allegation made by Alyssa as the motivation. After Detective Anderson establishes his belief of my father's means, motive, and opportunity, they go back again and speak about the surveillance, and how odd it is that my father has so many tapes from decades past, but nothing from the day Alyssa left or the alleged call from a week later. Detective Anderson reiterates that our father kept a video of Alyssa making out with a boy, and he questions Rhett. Why do you think this video was preserved, but not the one from the day Alyssa was gone? And Rhett responded, quote, There's probably something on it that he doesn't want the rest of the world to see. End quote. Anderson reiterates that if our father had this tape, he could use it to clear his name. They then discuss how my father shines a light on Alyssa's boyfriend, John. 
and how our father insisted that he was abusive and demeaning, and how none of Alyssa's friends have been able to corroborate those descriptions. And again, Detective Anderson asks, why do you think that is? And Rhett responds that it appears as if our father was, quote, setting someone up to take the attention from himself, end quote. They then discuss my father being manipulative. Rhett then goes on to say that me and all my siblings are brainwashed by our father. And at this point in 2012, I can't say that I disagree. And at the end of the interview, Detective Anderson again asks my brother Rhett, what do you think happened to Alyssa? And Rhett replies, quote, I think he killed her. I do. I believe that in my heart. You know what I mean? End quote. Like I mentioned, while my father's bomb trial was happening, they were digging deep into what happened to Alyssa. And on October 15, 2009, the police finally searched what I've called my father's duplicate truck. As a refresher, my father sold his truck shortly after Alyssa was gone, and he replaced it with a nearly identical truck and told no one. I didn't even know this second truck existed until I spoke with Detective Anderson at a missing persons event just a few years ago. In an effort to not bring the poor soul who bought my father's truck into this mess, I will be referring to them as the new buyer. But here's what the police found. The report reads... This supplement documents the recovery and examination of a 2001 Dodge pickup formerly owned by Michael Roy Turney. The vehicle was sold and transferred out of state in 2001, which is the same year Alyssa Turney was reported as a runaway. The vehicle was found to be registered in Nevada as early as November 2001. Detective Anderson and crime scene technician Finlay traveled to Nevada to contact the current owners and process the vehicle as a potential crime scene. Several paper documents related to Mike were recovered from the interior of the vehicle. The vehicle was of interest as it appears to have been purchased and then sold in a moderately short time frame. The vehicle was later sold by Mike prior to November 2001, with an estimated 25,000 accumulated miles. On October 15, 2009, technician Finlay and I arrived at the Nevada address of the new buyer. Finlay processed and photographed the vehicle while I spoke to the current owners. The vehicle is a white extended cab Dodge 1500 pickup. The vehicle displays the Ram 1500 V8 and sport model markings. The vehicle has a matching white bed enclosure and a plastic pen-to-tray bed liner. This is a 4x4 model equipped with a receiver. The VIN was verified as a match. Current mileage at the time of inspection is 91,064 miles. The new buyer stated that he had purchased the vehicle as a used car from a local dealership. He would provide the original purchase documents identifying the dealership and purchase date of November 2, 2001. I have contacted business manager Wendy Clifford. Wendy advised that the vehicle was purchased from an Air Park Motors Scottsdale, doing business as Auto Network Group of Arizona. Wendy provided documents showing that the vehicle was purchased by the new buyer with 24,901 miles accumulated. The new buyer advised that the vehicle was in good condition at the time of purchase. He did note that the vehicle pulled slightly to the right during a test drive. Prior to delivery, all four tires were replaced by the dealership. Mechanically, the vehicle has been sound with only routine maintenance and repairs. The vehicle has not been involved in any accidents and has never struck any persons or animals. The driver's rear taillight assembly was replaced several years ago. 
The light casing was struck and broken by another vehicle in a parking lot incident. Other than that one component and the aforementioned tires, the vehicle is all original parts. There has never been any stain, discoloration, or odor inside of the cab or covered bed of the vehicle per the new buyer. The interior of the vehicle has original floor mats and an aftermarket Sony brand CD player in the dash. The CD player slash radio came with the vehicle at the time of purchase by the new buyer. Inside the vehicle glove compartment, I recovered several items of paperwork belonging to Michael Roy Turney and related to the original purchase of the Dodge. The vehicle has been used extensively since purchased and routinely takes long trips to Southern California as a part of the new buyer's business. During these trips, the covered bed and the pickup is used to transport handmade bird stands and other pet-related merchandise. Processing of the vehicle was completed within four hours, during which the new buyers asked several questions about the investigation and my interest in their vehicle. They remained highly cooperative and asked to be informed of any progress in the investigation. The investigation is ongoing at this time. In addition to this police report, there is a supplement outlining exactly what they took from the truck. But it doesn't mention the paperwork that they found. But what it does mention is six hair samples garnered from the vehicle. They took hair from under the rear passenger side seat, another hair from the rear passenger side seat, but this time toward the back of the edge, from under the rear seat, under the center position toward the back, under the driver's side, rear passenger seat towards the back, on the front passenger side floor, and they took hair from one of the new buyers to test against the hair found in the vehicle. Officially, there are actually no results for the hair testing in the documents I have. However, at that event for the missing where I spoke to Detective Anderson, he told me that there was so much dog hair in the vehicle that it was extremely difficult to run the tests. So this one is still up in the air for me. Unfortunately, disappointing and incomplete results are just a part of this and many other missing persons cases. But I do have to say... I'm pretty confused that it appears that the truck wasn't luminol tested for traces of blood. Now, I'm not a trained detective, but if you are confiscating and testing this truck for hours, why not perform this test? But let's move on to a more complete analysis. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In February of 2010, the police received the official analysis of the runaway note found in Alyssa's room on the day she disappeared. The police partnered with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children to have the note analyzed by Dr. John R. Schaefer. This doctor was not given any detail about Alyssa's case other than her name, the fact that she went missing from Phoenix, Arizona, and a copy of the note. I definitely encourage you guys to look at Alyssa's actual note on VoicesForJusticePodcast.com under the Resources tab. Seeing the physical structure and handwriting will help you understand this analysis much better. But the following is Dr. Schaefer's report. 
John R. Schaefer, Ph.D., conducted a psychological narrative analysis, otherwise known as a PNA, of a four-sentence, hand-printed letter signed Alyssa. PNA is not an exact science. It is a conjecture based on the word choices people make when they write or speak. The analysis provided herein is for lead purposes only. Any information posited in this analysis must be corroborated with additional evidence. Alyssa's letter reads, Dad and Sarah, when you dropped me off at school today, I decided that I really am going to California. Sarah, you said you didn't want me around. Look, you got it. I'm gone. That's why I saved my money. Dad, I took $300 from you. Alyssa. The doctor then writes his analysis of the note, and he breaks down each line individually, beginning with Dad and Sarah. It's important to note that Alyssa didn't use the word and, and she didn't use a symbol for and, but instead she used a plus sign. For this line, the doctor writes, The writer wrote Dad first, which indicates that he is probably more important in Alyssa's life than Sarah. The plus sign suggests that Sarah and Alyssa's dad are equals. Sarah is not Alyssa's mother, or Alyssa would have referred to Sarah as mom. One hypothesis suggests that Sarah is Alyssa's stepmother, or her dad's live-in companion. A competing hypothesis posits that Sarah is Alyssa's sister. And he moves on to the next line. When you dropped me off at school today, I decided that I really am going to California. Alyssa used the pronoun you but she did not indicate if she was referring to her dad or both her dad and Sarah. The word dropped is misspelled. The word California is not capitalized. A comma was omitted after the word today. The word qualifier today indicates that the letter was written the same day Alyssa was dropped off at school. The lowercase personal identifier I suggests that Alyssa diminished herself. She is probably an insecure person who is passive-aggressive. If this is the case, then one hypothesis posits that Alyssa's family dynamics are dominated by her dad or Sarah, or both. Notwithstanding, Alyssa did not feel comfortable expressing herself in her home environment. The multiple use of the smaller case personal pronoun I supports the hypothesis that Alyssa is probably an insecure person. A competing hypothesis posits that the use of the lower case personal identifier I with the decorative dot, is a way for her to individualize herself. This practice is common in girls of Alyssa's age. The word clue, decided, suggests that Alyssa was contemplating options other than going to California. The word clue, decided, suggests that Alyssa is probably an introvert. Her decision to go to California was planned out to some degree. It was not a spontaneous decision. The word qualifier, really, suggests that Alyssa talked to either her dad or Sarah or both her dad and Sarah about going to California in the past. This supports the hypothesis that Alyssa is probably an introvert because her decision to go to California was planned out to some degree. The word qualifier, am going, suggests that Alyssa was in the act of going to California when she wrote the letter. One hypothesis suggests that the act of writing the letter was a part of the continuing action of her going to California. The word clue, California, suggests that Alyssa had a reason to go to California. One hypothesis posits that she knew someone in California and had some place to go. Perhaps she met someone on Facebook or some other internet social networking service. A competing hypothesis posits that Alyssa chose to go to California because she wanted to go to a place that is often associated with sunshine and dreams. Although elusive in reality, 
Alyssa's fantasy of life in California may have stood in stark contrast to what she perceived as her dysfunctional life with her dad and Sarah. The next line that's analyzed is, Sarah, you said you didn't want me around. Look, you got it. I'm gone. The word clue, you said you didn't want me around, suggests that Alyssa and Sarah did not get along well together, which lends to support the hypothesis that Sarah is Alyssa's stepmother, or her dad's living companion. A sister saying the same thing would likely not have the same impact as a stepmother or living companion. A competing hypothesis posits that Sarah may have said words to the effect she did not want Alyssa around during a verbal spat, and Alyssa attached more meaning to the words than originally intended. Alyssa then used Sarah's words as a passive-aggressive attack on her and an excuse to leave, adding this additional guilt on Sarah. The lowercase personal identifier, I'm, supports the hypothesis that Alyssa diminished herself and is an insecure person. The lowercase I with a decorative dot could have also been her way to individualize herself. The present tense, I'm, suggests that Alyssa is in the process of leaving, which supports the hypothesis that she was in the act of leaving when she wrote the note. The exclamation mark after I'm gone indicates that Alyssa was passionate about her decision to leave. The letter I is crossed out. One hypothesis posits that Alyssa was emotional at this point, started to write something, changed her mind, and finished her thought with I'm gone. Alyssa omitted the apostrophe in the contractions didn't and I'm. The doctor then moves on to the next line. That's why I saved my money. The word clue, that's why I saved my money, supports the hypothesis that Alyssa's actions were deliberate and planned out to some degree. It also supports the hypothesis that Alyssa is an introvert. The possessive my indicates that Alyssa made a distinction between the things that belong to her and the things that belong to her dad and or Sarah. Alyssa used an apostrophe in the word that's, which is a deviation from the use of apostrophes in sentence three. And the doctor moves on to the next line. Dad, I took $300 from you. He points out again that the lowercase i suggests that Alyssa diminished herself, was insecure, or was individualizing herself. The word clue, from you, supports the hypothesis that Alyssa made a distinction between things that belong to her and things that belong to her dad and things that belong to Sarah. The word clue, dad, I took $300 from you, suggests that Alyssa has a conscience because she admitted to taking the money. And finally, the doctor moves on to Alyssa's signature. Alyssa signed her name on a diagonal, which deviates from the rest of her letter. One hypothesis suggests that the diagonal signature is Alyssa's attempt to individualize herself. A competing hypothesis posits that she signed the letter at a different time than when she wrote the letter. And then the doctor goes into his observations. A high probability exists that the letter was written by Alyssa because someone other than Alyssa would not have used the lowercase personal identifier I with a decorative dot. Alyssa's use of the present progressive tense in sentences 2 and 3 supports the hypothesis that she wrote the letter because of a third party. Alyssa's use of the present progressive tense in sentences 2 and 3 supports the hypothesis that she wrote the letter because a third party would not likely have thought of using the present progressive tense in the appropriate places. Alyssa capitalized every other proper name in the note with an uppercase letter, so the lowercase personal identifier I with the decorative I is significant. 
Alyssa either diminished herself or is an insecure person or she was attempting to individualize herself, which is common for people in Alyssa's age group. From Alyssa's perspective, she lived in a home where there was a lot of interpersonal tension, especially between her and Sarah. This tension was ongoing for an extended period of time. One hypothesis posits that Alyssa may have been vying for her father's attention, which was being siphoned off by Sarah. Consequently, Alyssa and Sarah were engaged in an ongoing verbal confrontation that increased in intensity to the point where Alyssa made the decision to leave. Alyssa blamed Sarah, in part for her decision to go to California. Alyssa may have written this as a passive-aggressive attack on Sarah. The hypothesis that Alyssa is an insecure person suggests that Alyssa's dad probably dominated her to the point where she withdrew into herself as an act of self-preservation. Alyssa's dominating father, in combination with her introversion, caused her to be insecure with herself. The only way she had to gain control of her life was through passive-aggressive attacks, or she could leave the house. She chose to leave the house. If Alyssa did not have a specific place to go when she got to California, then she likely developed a fanciful illusion that California could give her the life she always fantasized about. California became a symbol of a better life. Alyssa had a reason to go to California. Most people don't randomly select a place to run away to. They have a reason, or purpose, real or imagined. Alyssa may have developed a relationship on Facebook, or other internet social network service, thus giving her a reason to go to California. Alyssa is likely quiet, submissive, and naive, which would make her susceptible to dominant males. Alyssa is a vulnerable target to street predators. And that's where the report ends. This analysis hit me hard. If Alyssa wrote this note at different times, what does that mean? Why would she willingly go back and add her name if she planned on leaving the note in her room before running away? It's not as if we wouldn't know the note was from her had she left her name out. When a teenager gets angry, decides to run away, and writes a note, would they really go back before leaving to sign their name just to ensure we know it's from them? I'm not so sure. And one thing that struck me about this note from the moment I found it on her dresser was that this note was signed with a capital A. Alyssa notoriously signed her name with a large, beautiful, lowercase a. And I've mentioned this to police since my first interview in 2008. So the fact that I have a problem with the signature, and this expert also theorizes that the signature could have been written at a different time, really leads me to believe that there is something very wrong about this note. And while we're theorizing about the note, let's take a look at the context. My father has always stated that he and Alyssa got into a fight at lunch after he picked her up from school. He says that she was angry about not getting the extra freedom she requested for the summer, and so he left her alone at home to cool down while he ran errands. Then, of course, he and I arrive later at the house to find this note and Alyssa gone. But if this big fight happened at lunch... Why does the note read, when you dropped me off at school today, I decided I really am going to California? If Alyssa decided to run away to California in the morning after being dropped off at school, why even have this alleged fight with our father? Why fight for more freedom if she planned on running away anyway? Why not write the note to read, 
after our fight at lunch, I decided I really am going to California. This is pure speculation, but I think it's possible that that note was written on a totally different day. It was found in her notebook and she was made to sign it in order to make her disappearance look like a runaway. But over the years, a lot of tips came in about Alyssa's case. There were reports of Alyssa being seen on television, working in a grocery store, and even being on a pornographic website, with one woman claiming to have seen a picture of a woman that looked just like Alyssa, with a white truck that looked similar to our father's. Psychics were reaching out, a neighbor came forward and said that my father had asked him for a silencer, and most chilling of all, one man even said he helped our father clean up the crime scene of Alyssa's murder. But unfortunately, none of these leads seem to have panned out. And at this point in the case file, the investigation seems to be dwindling down a bit, and the police decided that they have fully established my father's characteristics and would stop writing such exhaustive reports for every audio tape reviewed, stating, quote, The tapes have been reviewed in their entirety, but will no longer be remarked upon in such exhausting detail. It is noted that the process of recording every waking conversation is an odd habit. Mike also tends to grow his stories while speaking to various persons within the police department and with civilians. As an example, Mike will often talk about his case agent laughing at him during a phone conversation. Mike remarks that it was unprofessional and that he recorded the laughter on tape. However, when the tape was found and identified, no such laughter is present. Mike will also relay stories of having been cursed at or screamed at by our control officers. Again, the recorded conversation bears no such incident. Michael Roy Turney habitually exaggerates even inconsequential details. It is unclear if this is a part of his mental illness or an active ploy to deceive officers and plant information. The tapes also clearly show that Mike was hostile towards the police department and was avoiding contact with detectives whenever possible. So at this point, the investigation seems to be winding down a bit, just as the police were tying up loose ends by interviewing Rhett for a second and third time, searching the duplicate truck, and getting an official analysis of Alyssa's runaway note, the police decided to revisit Thomas Heimer's 2006 confession, the confession that sparked this entire investigation. And when I began to read the documents, I have to be honest, I had a full-blown panic attack and thought to myself, could this man have really killed my sister? Next time on Voices for Justice. Heimer said Alyssa remained quiet and would not speak about her past other than saying she could not go back now. Heimer assumed Alyssa was a runaway with an unhappy home life or possibly embarrassed from what had happened with the biker guy. Heimer advised that the necklace removed from Alyssa was given to Kristen a couple weeks after the murder. The ring was given to Aaron a week after the necklace was given to Kristen. I asked Heimer if he would be willing to take a polygraph to help authenticate his testimony. Heimer agreed. And after reading reports about Heimer's confession and subsequent communications with the FBI and Phoenix police... I needed to hear it for myself, so I wrote Thomas Heimer a letter, and he responded 
saying that I don't know the whole story and he would love to tell me what really happened. Voices for Justice is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Sarah Turney. If you want to learn more about Alyssa's story and how you can help with the case, visit justiceforalyssa.com. And if you love the show, it would really help if you gave me a rating and review in your podcast player. Thank you so much, and I'll talk to you next time.